Caroline Thompson was born in Washington, D.C. She grew up in a house full of books where she fell in love with horror novels, fantasy, and children's classics. Her suburban neighborhood and favorite novel, Frankenstein, later inspired her horror novel, First Born, and first produced screenplay, Edward Scissorhands. Thompson continued to explore horror and fantasy in screenplays for The Addams Family, City of Ember, and Welcome to Marvin, and the stop-motion animation features The Nightmare Before Christmas and Corpse Bride. She adapted The Secret Garden and Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, and directed and wrote Black Beauty, Buddy and Snow White, The Fairest of Them All. In 2011, she received the Austin Film Festival's Distinguished Screenwriter Award. She now lives near Santa Barbara with her husband and two dogs. Caroline Thompson, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. You're primarily known as a screenwriter and you've also directed. I also just discovered your first love was fiction. But, you know, it's interesting because I was discussing with people the kind of change in the ability to accept darkness for movies that were for children, that you were involved in Edward Scissorhands and others. But I hadn't realized how strong a departure it was from the Disney mold. Did you realize at the time that it was such a strong departure? No, (laughs) I did not realize. But here's the interesting thing. I was at a film conference in Austin, Texas, getting an award for screenwriting in 2011. And John Lasseter, this is long before his disgrace, was also there getting recognized for his contributions to the business. And we were on a panel together and he said, I don't think that you realize that if it were not for Nightmare Before Christmas, Pixar would never have existed. And needless to say, I didn't realize that. But he said, before The Nightmare Before Christmas, animated films were, via Disney particularly, were only from fairy tales or preconceived ideas of what was appropriate for children and only came from material that was not original. It was really, really moving to me to hear him say, if it weren't for you, we wouldn't be here. I blushed. (laughs) No, it's really interesting. And I guess children will always find a way to get exposed to darker material, material that's been reserved for adults. But I really admire the way in which your stories are not talking down to children, uh, respecting their ability to comprehend complexity. Well, I've always felt, and remembering myself as a child, I've always felt that children are the toughest audiences. They smell inauthenticity and bullshit faster than anybody. They, in my opinion, demand you treat them with respect for their emotional intelligence and their intellectual intelligence and their detection of things that are trying to pull the wool over their eyes. And so I've always respected kids as an audience. And the Harry Potter series, for example, carried on that tradition of respect for children. I've always wondered why my version of The Secret Garden was well-loved because I was actually not terribly, there were things in it that I thought were really flawed. And I finally asked an interviewer and they said, well, it's because it honored children as people and it showed darkness and it showed trouble and it showed pain, et cetera. Edward Scissorhands was never really imagined as a children's movie because it can be conceived of as fabulistic or fairy tale-ish that it might be regarded that way. But I mostly felt about it as a story for those of us who feel misunderstood and on the outside and that sort of thing. No, it's interesting. And I was exploring some of your more recent films, this strong moral core, the welcome to Marwan. I was very surprised by this story. I didn't realize it was a true story. So tell us a little bit about that. It's an interesting one. Not a children's story, but something that a darker child can understand as well. Well, that's certainly true. Yes, Welcome Tomorrow was based on a documentary called About This Man, Mark, who, because he was different, was beaten within an inch of his life and suffered terrible brain damage. And in America... As everyone is aware, our healthcare system is quite cruel, and he was thrown out of treatment before he was ready, so he devised his own treatment, which I suppose I believe we all do anyway. And he had been a very gifted physical artist. 
he drew, but he couldn't draw anymore after this terrible brain injury that he suffered. So he became a photographer and he created his own fantasy world of his vision of World War II, in which he had an avatar for himself who was the guy and a stable full of fabulous women who defended him. And just a fantastically interesting way of pulling himself out of personal tragedy. I mean, I applaud you for noticing that something that's very important to me is a moral core. And I don't mean moralistic. I mean, a strong sense of right and wrong and good and bad and a defense of the victim, I suppose is really important to me. I love animals. I think of all my movies as animal stories, really. I think of all the people as animal equivalents. So yeah, that's always been very important to me is standing up for the person who can't stand up for themselves. You can see even through Lester, Welcome to Marwen, to Edward Scissorhands, the kind of outsider, misunderstood, yes. but tormented for their different. Yes, that's exactly right. And I think it's still a mission worth aiming at because God knows in this world that we live in right now, there are a lot more defenseless people where we're recognizing that there are a lot more defenseless people than we ever before admitted. Yeah, it's strange because I think a lot about how we can improve our educational models. We learn so many things at school and they're great teachers and they're great compassionate teachers, but it's not teaching empathy, which I guess is done through the arts indirectly, but it's not something we always emphasize over, like academic excellence. And I fear it's getting more so. I mean, in my country, it seems that at the university level, the liberal arts are in grave danger. And the point of the liberal arts is not to waste your time. (laughs) The point of the liberal arts is to teach people how to think and how to feel compassion Mm -hmm. and how to put themselves into other people's position. I don't think humans are born empathetic. I have often been feared, loathed. I don't know. I demand manners of people around me. So in my business, the film business, manners are not something that people tend to have very skillful iterations of. And so I've always said, a woman's walking in the room, stand up, men. And the men say, well, that's not very feminist. I said, yeah, it is. We're honoring a woman. Get get, get (laughs) out of your chair. Think about somebody besides yourself. Hold that door open. Because the people aren't inclined to think about others. They're inclined only to think of themselves. And particularly now, again, in the U.S., this sense of entitled individualism is appalling and rampant and really frightening to me for the future of our citizenry. Well, I think you said something important. Besides, you know, entertaining us and giving us things of beauty, I think that we can really help people to learn to listen better and to observe more and then to accept difference and all these things and that the arts do so beautifully. And I think without, as you say, moralizing or without being about a theme or a cause, those stories, as I see in your work, can be used to illuminate the important issues concerning the environment. So I'm now thinking of the city of Ember. Yes, the the city of Ember is a very, very strong story about survival and about how we adjust and what we adjust to and, and our sense of resilience. And also about the awfulness of what we're perpetrating on our planet and how dire our futures might well be because of the way we're behaving. Yeah, I think that we often forget. I mean, people have different spiritual views, so they might think that they have more than one life. But I do think that we have one planet and people often behave as though we have multitudes and it's just not... Well, again, it's, I think it's an extension of people behaving as if they're the only person on the planet mm. and people behaving without a sense of responsibility toward others or even an awareness of others. Mm. I mean, again, that's why I'm so fanatical about insisting on manners because it's codifying respect for others. I know that seems silly, but I think it's a really strong metaphor for selfishness and selflessness. And it's a simple one. There's a motto all screenwriters have, which is 
straight, stupid, simple <laughs> brings you the gold. <laughs> so the three S's. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you could weave in the nuances. So no, I thought that was beautifully told that story, uh, City of Ember, and also pointing to the fact, and I'm very grateful that that young people are really taking on the understanding of the importance of the environment more than previous generations. But how- Absolutely. Well, my generation, to be honest, we were very aware of it. The 70s, there were solar panels on the White House. We were trying to change the world. The whole zeitgeist pivoted away from a selfless awareness of how much we need to take care of ourselves and our planet. It became a very selfish and self-absorbed culture. The motto of the 80s was, he who has the most toys wins. <sighs> Go figure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> People had that on bumper stickers. All over oh, I, I never saw that. It's interesting because awareness of the environment and green technologies can also be instruments of capitalism can work side by side with that. It's not course. It can be very efficient when you don't have to. I mean, the, the one, sorry to interrupt, but the one hope I have for our current situation is that the way back to economic security is through green jobs. So in other words, we could get a Works Progress Administration program like we had in the Depression, which in that program, they were all kinds of electrical grids built, et cetera, et cetera. We could get a program to build solar power, wind power. We could get a program to reimagine what industry looks like in our country. And I think that is a potential for now. And I do have hope that that could happen. I think it's interesting also when people's lives are threatened, we've noticed environmental improvements in the quality of air because of transport and flying. So Isn't it wonderful? Yeah, so people are willing to move that quickly. But so it shows us we can do with less. And then there's other things I've noticed in America, you have many shopping malls, which are now going out of business. And I think is that, oh, so instead of having these huge empty buildings, what can you put there? Can you put health centers, art centers, community centers? My husband and I for years have been fantasizing about what to do with these big empty malls. There's plumbing, there's electricity, there's rooms. I mean, do something smart. The drive-in movie theater is becoming something that people want to do again. And we were thinking, what if these young people decided, okay, let's make a kit to convert these giant parking lots in malls into drive-in theaters, both for film and for stage and for concerts. There's opportunities to be had, and I do imagine people will put their brains to do things. Mm-hmm. It's interesting how it has brought out people's creativity, even those who didn't consider themselves artists, because of being forced to stay in or slow down that, invites a kind of dreaming. And so that's been positive that people had a chance to explore things that they didn't give themselves an opportunity to do before. I'm going to take singing lessons. (laughs) (laughs) Early on when Wikipedia was sort of more of a Wild West show. So I said I was a French pop star in the 70s. Oh, (laughs) which I always wanted to be, but I can't sing or carry a tune. So I've decided I'll take a Zoom singing class. I have an office that's a a separate building in my garden, so I can go and practice my terrible singing, disturbing no one, except for the poor teacher who I will be Zooming with. But anyway, yeah, it's a time to go, okay, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? What's inside that I haven't let out yet? That's so interesting. And you have been involved with with Corpse Bride, and I believe also Edward Scissorhands is adapted for the stage. Was, was there music in that as well? There was a ballet, a ballet that uh, Matthew Bourne in England did. It was absolutely beautiful and lovely. We've been approached about a lot of stage adaptations, but nothing's ever come of it yet. Yeah. And then Corpse Bride, were you writing those songs? No. So A Nightmare Before Christmas... The songs were composed before the screenplay, which was very mm-hmm. awkward. But in Corpse Bride, the screenplay was devised before the songs. It's a whole other skill, I imagine, writing 
the book for musicals, writing the lyrics for songs. Do you enjoy those kind of limitations or do you prefer a more natural spoken word? Well, it's interesting you use the word limitations because one thing I've loved so much about being a screenwriter as opposed to being a novelist Mm -hmm. is that a novelist, it can be anything. And I found the it could be anything quite overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote my first and only novel, I went back to a much older vision. I did it an epistolary novel or rather a diary novel, sort of invoking the Gothic novels of the late 19th century. Dracula was written as a series of letters or diary entries. Now I can't remember. But I've always really loved screenwriting because to me it's like writing sonnet or poetry that has structure because it can't be anything, at least to my mind, it couldn't be anything. It has limitations. And I thrive within those boundaries. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think about sculpture or something where maybe you feel that it's just becoming more itself. You're taking away these things and it's becoming more its shape. I was just thinking about sculpting the other day. I've taken up oil painting in the last few years and I'm loving that. And I was looking at, I guess, Rodin being the most obvious example of somebody who left enough of the raw stone that you could feel the, the sculpture being discovered in the stone. Well, that sounds really fun. <laughs> I'm an oil painter. I had done very little sculpture, except I learned the Bonafresco. I guess it's a little bit sculptural in a sense, but it's still flat, but with texture. I like to be able to redo something, so I always fear, like, what if you, you do a mistake? I'm with you. <laughs> oil paint is so forgiving. <laughs> it's I mean, nice. I'm even afraid of a pencil or charcoal. It's not as forgiving. Oil paint is so forgiving. What's so amazing as you look and you see Michelangelo, but all those Renaissance artists and just Florence is just an amazing place, of course. But you think about, it's a real kind of spiritual devotion. The patience and the love and the dedication to beauty is so so breathtaking. But don't you find that for yourself when you're painting, for example, Mm -hmm. that this sense of happiness and flow comes over you that you don't get in other parts of your life? Well, I have been lucky to be an artist all my life. You know, some kind of commercial elements took over, but I think I've always been able to find that somehow. But so I think that's the spirit, for me anyway, that's the spiritual devotion. I mean, they now have a name for it, which is mindfulness. But that sort of well-being and time disappearing and all your thoughts, no matter how miserable your life might be at the moment, all of those other thoughts go away when you're busy either writing something beautiful or terrible. The creative process is a real gift to the humans. And I think it's interesting and lovely that you write often, as you said, these are adult stories, but often also for children, because they're constantly in that state of flow or the boundary between themselves and the world is so porous, right? Well, you hope, you hope for children. There's so many children who I think life is so difficult, they don't get that, but... But yeah, that's what one hopes for children, yes. I mean, but even in hardship, the imagination is strong. They're really artists, even if they're Absolutely. I always imagine it's freeing because when you tell a story to a young person, they're not like, that's impossible. (laughs) I can't fly. I can't just like, really? Oh, that's good. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, the openness is really a beautiful thing. You're right about that. I, I totally agree. But as I said before, their bullshit meters are so in tune. Dishonesty can be smelled a million miles away by a child. Yeah, they don't know how to lie. I even have a problem now. So I had a problem for years. That can be bad because you can actually insult people without realizing it. Yeah, no, I have the same problem. Because they ask you for your opinion and then you say something that <laughs> I always felt that as much as art is about kind of dream, not telling the truth, it's still about the truth, right? In some way. Absolutely. And you're comfortable with that. And I didn't know because I was just kind of raised by these people who are a little bit I don't know. They didn't know how not to tell the truth. I thought that was normal. I really thought that was normal. That's so funny. Well, people ask my opinion and I give it. If it upsets them, I say, well, don't ask my opinion then. Yeah. I mean, I always see the positive in things, but I understand a little better. But it's just strange because I had always thought that to be told the truth would be the best thing because it's a sign of respect. You wouldn't want to be lied to. 
So that's one of those lessons of growing up, I guess. That, Mia, sometimes there's a distinction, and I think a lot of people forget this. There's your opinion, mm-hmm. and then there's truth, right? It's important when you're responding to other people's work to say, this is my opinion, instead of this is the truth. I, I think is- it wasn't so much with that, more just mm-hmm. telling the truth. Yes, yeah. I tell the truth. I, mean, <laughs> yeah, it's it's easy. I think it's easier to tell the truth. If you don't tell the truth and you stack up the lies, then you're going to forget what you said to whom and blah, blah, blah. I too have learned to see the positive in people and their work as opposed to being some grumpy smart ass. Sure, <laughs> of course. And now because film is such a collaborative medium, I don't know what it's like in these kind of script writers rooms. I don't know if it's as much with film because I know TV, it's all these writers rooms. Well, they're starting to do, I mean, this is appalling to me because mm-hmm. I work alone and pretty much always have. But they're starting to do writers' rooms for feature films, which to me, everything needs a voice. And yes, film is a collaborative medium. But the miracle for me of Edward Scissorhands is that we were all making the same movie. And it had a very unique and whimsical and lyrical and particular tone. Everybody got the tone. And we accomplished what I later, because that was my first film, I later learned it was a miracle that we were all working with the same feelings about what we were after. That's really, really difficult in the film business. To me, it's insurmountable if you start doing writer's rooms because it loses its voice. Mm-hmm. You know, the film will lose its particularity and that's kind of heartbreaking to me, but everything changes and I feel really blessed to have been in the thick of it when I was because even though... Historically, including my era, writers don't really garner much respect. I, I was able to just stay true to myself. Good morning, good afternoon, and good night. My name is Ava Council, and I'm a second year at Syracuse University. And here at The Creative Process, I'm an associate podcast producer. First off, I just wanted to say how much of a treat it has been to hear insights from the talented Caroline Thompson. I've learned so much already. Throwing it back to the beginning of the episode, Thompson discussed the importance of respecting children's intelligence and opinions and how she makes an effort to not talk down to children within her screenplays. This is something that I can really appreciate. Growing up, one of the most irritating things is when parents, teachers, adults, or anyone older wouldn't take my ideas seriously or simply would write whatever I said off simply because it was from me, a young person. And now that I'm much older, about to turn 20, this still happens despite the fact that I've graduated high school and am enrolled in college. Just recently, there was an incident that occurred on a social media platform involving one of my relative's friends. I'm a black woman, and when the BLM movement was at its peak, I felt passionate about a specific topic and I decided to share my thoughts. Immediately, an older individual commented on my post and said, oh, please, you're still wet behind the ears. Immediately, I felt my opinion was being invalidated. This is something that happens to a lot of younger people. Their thoughts and ideas, no matter how great, are quickly invalidated because of age. Small comments like these can take a toll, especially on younger individuals, and keep them from doing what they are passionate about, whether it be painting, sculpting, building robots, designing, etc., Funny enough, some of my best ideas now are inspired from ideas I had as a child. One of those ideas having to do with tumbleweeds. When I was little, I had a fascination with tumbleweeds. I just couldn't get enough of them. Whenever I'd see one, my mom and I used to talk about them like they were people. We would dream about their journeys, where they had come from, where they were going. And now that I'm older, I've taken that idea and written a short story and I'm hopefully going to get one of my friends to animate that but that's something really exciting that came from my younger self. Knowing this and knowing how I felt as a child I make a point and I think everyone should make a point to do this as well to respect younger voices and creativity and really appreciate it and for that matter all voices. Everyone should be appreciating and respecting all voices despite the age, race, and gender. Okay, now that you've heard my two cents, let's get back to the episode. So tell a little bit about the genesis of Edward Scissorhands and what it's like to collaborate with Tim Burton 
I know there was an important film, first film for you, for I think it's early film for Johnny Depp, and so many people were coming up together. Well, I had written a novel that a director wanted to make into a film, and it was sort of horror novel slash satire about growing up in suburbia, but it was very angry and adolescent in its inception and its execution. But this director wanted to make a film of it. And I was already living in LA at that point. And I said to her, well, you can have the option for a dollar if I can write the screenplay with you. She'd also been a writer. And I thought, oh, that's a good way for me to learn about screenwriting. Because I really like to learn by doing rather than by sitting in a lecture hall. <laughs> anyway, so we wrote the film. It never got made. But her agent wanted to represent me and I didn't have an agent. So I said, okay, he's still my agent 35 years later or more. So that's pretty amazing for our business. And there was another client at the agency. His name was Tim Burton and he had just made Pee Wee's Big Adventure. He was at some point in the making of Beetlejuice, but not, I don't, it had not come out yet or I can't really recall. Anyway, so they didn't know what to do with either of us with our sort of off-kilter sensibilities, so they introduced us, and we immediately felt a kinship and became friends, and it was pretty clear from pretty early on that we wanted to work together. We socialized quite a bit and talked on the phone and sort of throw out ideas, and among the ideas we talked about, Tim mentioned to me a drawing he had made in high school of a character who had scissors instead of hands, and I said, stop right there. First of all, this may surprise you, it was the stupidest thing I'd ever heard in my life. So I knew it was brilliant. It was so simple, again, straight, simple, stupid. It was so simple and so stupid and such an obvious metaphor. I knew that it had power beyond belief. And I said, stop. I know exactly what to do with that. And so I basically rewrote my novel in terms of suburban obsession story about the sort of beauty on the surface of suburbia and the sort of unhappiness underneath that surface. I was still more of a prose writer than a screenwriter at that point. So I went home and I wrote sort of a quick 70 pages of the story. And that's its genesis. And Tim loved that. And we set the project up at 20th Century Fox with the proviso, because even then, executives were pretty meddlesome. And there's no way, Edward Scissorhands was a fable, basically. And there's no way that practical questions could have been answered. Like, how does he go to the bathroom? Or blah, blah, blah. blah. The movie would have been hammered into nothing by too much meddling. So we made a deal that I would write the script for Writers Guild Minimum, and when we turned it in, the studio would have a weekend to say yes or no, and that was that. And that's an unheard of deal. Mm -hmm. No meetings, no pitches, no nothing. And that's how we did that. It worked. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great negotiating. <laughs> take it, take it all that was all. I mean, Tim had a certain amount of power by that point, and that was all him. That was, it was brilliant. It never could have survived otherwise. And certainly today it would never get made, which is really a pity. But we're lucky it got made when it did, and there it is. And it kind of grew a cult film, but I don't know how the popularity was initially. It didn't do business very much at all initially. I mean, it was not popular. It stuck around. Same thing with Nightmare Before Christmas. It wasn't popular at the very beginning, but it certainly stuck around. Those are the two blessings. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think people appreciate things more when they have to discover something in it. I think that the affection is deeper then. Nice. So uh, you're speaking to your crowd and they really love you then. And so you work together a lot because you have, I imagine, a lovely collaborative relationship. Well, I wish we still had a collaborative relationship, but we grew apart, Tim mm -hmm. and I. I mean, I feel like I'm his best writer and he's my best director, but unfortunately, I say we had our 13th and final breakup. <laughs> and we did. Well, there's beautiful films that, that live forever. So that's a nice thing. So you don't like to have writer's room. I guess you're not tempted by, even though there's great things coming out of TV, but you're not tempted by that kind of grinding schedule. And Well, I think there are great things coming out of TV. And if I were 30 years old, I would love to be in a writer's room. But I'm 64 <laughs> years old now. and Nothing seems more hellish to me than sitting for 15 hours a day around a table with other people. I just, 
I couldn't imagine it at this point in my life. But that's how I thought writers worked when I first wanted to become a writer. My first love was soap operas, and I wanted to work on a soap opera, and I thought that's how they did it, but they didn't. I mean, I do have a TV project that's stalled, but I made a deal with the company that I would not be in the writer's room because I just can't. I don't live in Los Angeles anymore. I mean, from that on down, it would just be a physical impossibility. It's interesting, though, the... Actually, I was just speaking yesterday with Howard Rodder. I like Howard. He's a nice man. Yeah, he was talking about the power of TV writers have. But of course, it comes with 18-hour days or whatever it is. Because they don't make any money. The survival for a TV writer is a real struggle. I know, know, the showrunner, but then again, do you sleep? You don't sleep, but you don't make a living, really. I mean, it's not... They say it's a writer's world, and I mean, I didn't feel powerful. I felt just as demeaned <laughs> as, as one does in features these days. Right. Okay. Now that's sad for me because I was always imagining. Sorry. Well, um, maybe I just was with the wrong people. I don't really know because it's my only experience, but it just didn't feel like I was getting any more respect than I was getting in features. So in what world theater writing, but that's a very precarious as a novelist, you're the boss completely. I know. And I actually am daydreaming about a new novel. It's been 40 years since I wrote a novel. Gosh, is that right? But I love writing. And I'm just feeling like, and a lot of filmmakers actually seem to be turning to novel writing now. I think because we did get tired of the micromanagement that came in as the business became, you know, when I first was in the business, it was still a bit of the Wild West. I would often find myself the only person in a room with a university education. Now, it's odd to find myself in a room where everybody else has a business degree. They're not creative people in their impulses. They're very micromanaging in terms of thinking that they know, you know, they all take these stupid screenwriting classes and they think they know. Whenever anybody says to me, well, what's the first act turn? I say to you, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) and isn't it sort of awful when you can see that that's oh there's the first actor (laughs) you should be so taken in by the story that you're like i can't even believe it's over (laughs) i want to watch it again exactly right thank thank you for saying that. that's really well put i mean as much as i love and respond to the structure of screenwriting i also feel that it's an intuitive process so again If I I haven't been invited in a long time, probably because I'm not very cooperative, but screenwriting conferences, I'll find myself on a panel with other writers and they'll be bloviating about the first act turn and the middle point or whatever. And I'll do the, there's this thing in our country where you play the dumb country lawyer. You go like, golly, you guys are so smart. I just write, is what I say. Educate yourself by exposure and experience. You don't do it by writing in a notebook, page 27 has to do this or that or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, for that matter, you know, what children even know in terms of they always want to know what happened next is just as important. Exactly. It's interesting because, I mean, I love cinema, but often it's these little magic intersections that happen. Like it was in the script, but then it interacted with some setting in some change of weather or some character actor coming in and doing something. Well, it was interesting. On Edward Scissorhands, I did not go to set the first week of production, even though I was invited, because I felt that, I mean, Tim's a nervous enough person. I felt like he would feel I was scrutinizing or whatever. And and so I turned up at the set in Tampa, Florida, the second week, and immediately, and I was naive. I didn't know that the screenwriter wasn't supposed to answer the actor's questions. So when Johnny Depp came up to me and said, I am so lost, I do not understand what I'm doing, who this character is, how did I just don't get it. And I said, your character is based on my favorite dog I ever had. She was alert and attentive and interested in everyone and everything and curious and The only thing that kept her from completely participating was the physiology of her vocal tracks. She was there. Mm -hmm. And he said, I get it. And then he turned in this absolutely exquisite, very delicate performance, understanding how to do that. And similarly, Alan Arkin came up to me and said, I'm lost. I don't get this father guy. I don't get anything about it. And I said, okay, your character is based on my dad 
who love to say completely trite and irrelevant things with enormous self-importance. He went, I get it. And off he went and made this beautiful performance. So anyway, magic can certainly happen with an actor, with a director. On that film, magic happened pretty much from top to bottom. I mean, between Bo Welsh's production design and Colleen Atwood's costumes and the casting and Tim's direction and Danny Elfman's music. I mean, it just kicked ass, really. It just really worked. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's so nice how those things can come together. And also being first film for you, early film for so many people, too. That's- it ruined me, I'll tell you, for reality. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you could do the take of the leave it deal with. <laughs> well, I thought, that, I thought every movie was going to be magical. Of course, that's dreaming, but I don't mind dreaming. <laughs> have you considered writing children's books? I have written a couple, never got them published. I may, you know, now that I'm painting, I may actually do a whole vision. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Okay, sorry, I just, I didn't mean to say. But no, no, please, you're, please say anything. More or less, I've slowed down a lot. And quite often things sound like work to me. <laughs> so I'm a little, I'm getting an allergy to work. It's not really through choice. It's just through energy, to be honest. I was interested in what your scripts look like because you were saying about giving some kind of insights to the actors. Do you write a lot of parentheticals or stage notes or description? I mean, it all depends. Or do you like to leave that kind of suggested? And Well, that's a, that's a very perceptive question. No one's ever asked, but I'm starting as a fiction writer. I'm very aware of the reading experience of a screenplay. So my screenplays have always been respected for their readability and their... So here's my belief. My belief is that my first job is to manipulate, which all writers do, is to manipulate the reader right? And secondarily to manipulate the director into seeing as important what I see as important Mm. visually. So first of all, I don't write stage directions because I think that offends a director. But Mm -hmm. I, if I think there's something that I really want the director to pay attention to, Mm -hmm. I will put it on its own line. And I don't believe in long paragraphs of description because I think that readers glaze over that. People who read screenplays, they want them to go, right? And the highest compliment they think for a writer is, oh, I read that so fast. It was such an easy read. Well, that's not by any of itself a compliment. You want somebody to linger, right? So I believe in short descriptions. I don't write a lot of parentheticals. I write short declarative sentences that are quite colorful in a literate way. In other words, I'll use a very engaging verb. I love engaging verbs and I'm allergic to parentheticals. I try to make the page reflect my priorities. I want the readers to have a certain experience. For example, lots of beginning writers will think it's adequate to say, it's a typical day in a typical suburbia, a typical sunrise, a typical, nothing's typical. You want to sell them in your mind's eye. So I'm just very, very, very conscious of that and of how the page looks and of how it feels. And, and I like it to appear sort of transparent and simple. And I don't want to insult anybody or bore anybody with stage direction. And I want to make for a clear and controlled reading experience for every reader. That's great. And then do you accept or mind during the adaptation to the cinematic form, if some visual suggestions or your vision becomes translated in a different way. I mean, are you seeing, as you're saying, hooking the director or hooking the the initial reader and then accepting that it may go through this other transformation, but you're getting your hook in initially? Yes. And it's because I felt that directors had stopped listening to me that I wanted to direct myself, but I was not happy as a director. I much prefer the solitude of writing. I did it a few times because I didn't want to feel defeated by the job, but I'm a pretty introspective and introverted person and I didn't enjoy always being at the center and the driving force and the person answering a thousand questions a minute. It just did not suit my personality. So, sure. so you started that with Black Beauty. I started that with Black Beauty and, and I haven't directed in a really long time and I'm happy for that. Yeah, I can imagine being at the center of everyone's questions and all the decisions. Exactly. And, you know, if I were drawn to stories that were one or two actors, perhaps, 
that would maybe be different, but I'm drawn to stories that are impossible. They either have tons of animals or a lot of animatronics. My stories are not just two people in a room talking. Mm -hmm. So it is a much bigger circus than might otherwise have been under my purview. I just didn't enjoy it. Sure, I, I can imagine the pressure. It makes me admire it all the more. Me too. <laughs> I think Especially it's, someone like Tim, who yeah. he's a very introverted person, and the fact that he can get out there and, and do battle with it as often as he does is very impressive to me. Yeah, that always surprises me when you meet people who, by force of their profession, must be extroverted in some way, and you discover that they're quiet and sensitive, or even they'll tell you that they don't like being around people and want to. I mean, I feel blessed that I have a gift that could keep me home alone in a room, <laughs> as opposed to having to stand there being the general of a huge army. Sure. And why were you drawn to storytelling initially? There were storytellers in your family. There were teachers who inspired you growing up. Yeah, it was mostly teachers. I don't come from artistic people. My dad was an attorney and somebody said to me he was the best writer they had ever met. So I suppose if you're an attorney, you need to be persuasive and manipulative. So you're telling a story. I don't really know. I resisted any temptation to even explore that profession, despite my dad's desire for me to do so. My grandfather loved to read and read to us all the time. My mom, the same. My first exposure to great writing was through my grandfather who lived next door, who would bet on the horse races. And he would take me to the drugstore with him first thing in the morning to pick up the racing papers. Initially, I loved to drive with him because he cursed a lot. I was two and three. He would curse at everybody and shake his fist and call him a bastard. And so I thought that was hilariously funny. And we would come home and he would read me the racing paper, uh -huh. which sports writing is very, very colorful writing, especially about the horse races, especially in the 50s. And then we would pick the ponies together. So it gave me my two loves, which was horses and writing. I actually think of that as first thing that drew me, ironically. But then I was blessed with teachers. I was blessed with some great teachers. Yeah, they're so important. I don't think that we honor them as much as we should, particularly for teachers for our young children are just not as... It's interesting. So when I was five years old in kindergarten, I did a painting of a penguin. Mm -hmm. And the teacher was blown away by it. She ran down to the head of school's office and she was just like so enthusiastic and showed it to everybody. And I took it home and my mother said, oh, that's nice, dear, and mashed it up and threw it in the trash. My mother had her own pressures, and this is not a story to try to condemn my mother, but it did sort of put the stops on my painting until I was in my late 50s. I mean, I, people can be really impactful on your, on your self-confidence. So when it came to writing, I didn't let my mother near anything that I did because intuitively I understood I needed to protect myself because I didn't want that same experience of like, oh, that's nice, throw it away. So when I was in high school, I had a teacher, we wrote short stories and she had a novelist acquaintance who read the pile of short stories from my class. And he came to the class, and of course, I was home ill that day, so I didn't get the full experience. But he came to the class and apparently pulled my story out of the pile and said, there is a real writer among you. And uh -huh. that was like the true first validation that was public and obviously made an enormous impact on me. Sure. Your unique voice is seen and heard. And, and that it was strong enough to be taken note of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's so nice. And in terms of mentorship, I mean, I guess you are learning as you're going from your first film experience to learning the act of screenwriting. And have you done teaching or I know you've done conferences, but I was wondering what kind of advice that you would give to young writers? Well, my advice is pretty straightforward. It's if you want to be a movie writer, watch movies. If you want to be a novelist, read novels. If you want to be a television writer, watch TV. And if you want to be a poet, read poetry. I mean, I feel that you need to get the rhythms of the work into your bones and your blood. I remember going to film conferences early on in my career and people's questions, the audience's questions were always like, how do you get an agent? I said, well, how many screenplays have you written? One. I said, well, write. 
don't think about the getting of the agent. Mm -hmm. Think about the work, do the work, Mm -hmm. love the work, have it be something that you can't live without doing. Don't dream about celebrity, which is the curse of our culture. Dream about earning the right to have people interested in you. Don't wish you could leap straight to the people interested in you part. I'm not a very patient teacher. The only thing I've ever taught is horseback riding, and I'm really nasty. (laughs) I often used to make the kids get off the horse because they were just being cruel to the horse. Stop pulling on that horse's mouth. Get off. I'm that kind of person. I'm not not a patient person. (laughs) I think it's better I stay away from the classroom. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's all a kind of listening, teaching process anyway, when good collaboration where you're picking up on other people's strengths and adding it to your own. Well, I'm happy also to seem like a human being to people who want to do what I do. I believe in not putting on airs and in being myself, which is a very sort of down to earth person. And I think that in and of itself makes people feel like it's not inaccessible to try to follow your wishes and hopes and dreams. Just, I try to seem like, I did it, you can do it. And I think that leading by, by sort of psychic and emotional example is strong. And that's what I think I have to contribute. Yes. And I guess in addressing it, talking about the drive-in cinemas, I mean, obviously cinema has gone through an evolution. We were talking about television. When you think of in the context of everything that's going on in the world too, but when you think about the future of cinema and um, filmic storytelling, what are your hopes and concerns and what do you feel that we should preserve and remember? I think that's an impossible question to answer. I have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, I, as I said, my husband was in production and he's got lots of mentees who are in production now and they have young families and they're just scared to death because people can't cluster in rooms. I mean, I love animation and for animation, you don't have to be a dense group in a room. Any project I have out there, which is very few at this point, I say, think about animation. It can be made and it's beautiful. There was just a piece in the New York Times today that I was reading about theater and about And I haven't had a chance to push the links to see what people are actually doing. But there's an awful lot of creativity going on out there using these new formats that are available to us. You know, you think about other pandemics and the isolation people are required to go through. But look, you're in Paris. I'm in Santa Barbara. We get to see each other and talk and we get to interact. I think we, in our spoiled selves, don't really appreciate what we have. But I do think that this is a new medium the Zoom medium and, and what kind of combination of that people can't be in the same absolute literal space. So what are you going to do with it? And I think that's very exciting. And I encourage any young filmmakers that I know who are writers just like, well, okay, do something for Zooms. What can you do? So it's exciting time, but it's a very limiting time. I mean, I can't imagine going and sitting in a movie theater right now. Can you? No, I used to all the time, but yeah. I can't. And my friend Matthew Bourne, who did Edward Scissorhands' ballet, what's going to happen to theater? I've never written a play because they make me nervous. <laughs> I'm, ner- I'm afraid for the, the humanity of the people up there. What if they fall down or forget their lines? Or I mean, I just theater makes me quite nervous. But what if people who do theater, what's going to happen? If their work lives by the vitality of being in the same space, which a lot of theater artists' work does, what are they going to do? They're going to have to adjust to the new media as well. But art never stays the same. There's never a moment where you want to freeze it in time anyway. So this is a kind of evolution. And I imagine all evolutions happen through shock. This is a shocking time and it's going to shock us into something new. And I'm personally glad to be here to see it. That's a positive way of saying it. I mean, I'm sure there's even things with holographic imaging or the epistolary novel might make a comeback. (laughs) And also virtual reality. I don't know. I agree with you. The mistake would be, and I don't think artists ever make this mistake. It's the people who consume the arts who make the mistake. The mistake would be to want to freeze time and return to normal. I mean, Mm. what does that even mean? There never was normal. It was just passing time. Sure. And I guess as you think next more generally about the future, because it's an initiative for, for young people, not just students of the arts, but the sciences, international studies, law students, 
we think about the kind of world we're leaving the next generation, how the arts can be a part of that, how they can be used as you think about the environment and different things. What are your hopes for the future? Are you committed to some of these causes with animal welfare or different things? Well, as I said, I think we need to roll with the punches, but I also think we need to be conservators of what we have. You said it really well earlier. Some people have spiritual practices that make them think this isn't their only life, but this is our only planet. And it may be too late, but I don't think we can act as if it's too late. I obsessively recycle correctly. Like if I get a new piece of electronic equipment, I don't throw the old piece into the garbage. I take it to the recycling center. And people say, that's so stupid. That's just one little drop in the bucket. But I feel if everybody did their drops in the bucket, the bucket would fill up. And we all have a responsibility to each other. That's what's so infuriating about this sort of rugged individualism of not wearing masks in my country. It's just ridiculous to politicize and looking after each other's health is just worse than infuriating. It's just enraging. I think that the pity in our world is that we isolate science and art. It's all interconnected. I mean, the most interesting literature class I took at university was largely populated by students of physics. They had the weirdest friggin' brains. I just loved hearing what they had to say about William Faulkner. It just blew my mind. And I think if we think of each other's fields of expertise as more fluid and more interconnected, I think the world of expanding our brains is going to be a lot more interesting. I think that that's so true. We often find that some of the things that we struggle with have been solved in other disciplines, and we can build on that. Indeed, indeed. The misnomer, which I labored under as a young person, that only artistic endeavors are creative is bullshit. Everything is creative. Just breathing is creative, but everything is creative. Mm. That's true. Well, I look forward now that you speak to me about the creative writing physicists. (laughs) I'm I'm imagining your next story maybe in some science fiction world. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I don't know either. (laughs) I'm not that bright about that stuff, but I really appreciate their brains. (laughs) Yes. Well, thank you, Caroline Thompson, for sharing your wonderfully weird and sensitive and positive moral core, your stories. Uh, Thank you for inviting us into your imaginative world. And thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. Thank you for including me in your project. I appreciate it. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Ava Council. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadales and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcast, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creative.info.